following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Something I don't do very often with you guys, and I should do it more because it's always true, and I just don't think to say it, but sometimes when you're away, you think about things, and you get back, and it helps you kind of appreciate what you have more. Thank you for the opportunity to do this every week. Um, it used to be called, the pulpit used to be called the sacred desk. And if you look back in older uh, pastors writing, talking about their opportunity to preach, they would talk about the sacred desk and the opportunity they had to open God's word from it. Well, I don't have a pulpit. I don't really want a pulpit. I like the stand quite fine. If I dislike anything about it, it's this horrible lip here, which I'd like to cut in half. So if one of you wants to come and do that for me, I would appreciate it. But uh, apart from that, I am still reminded that the opportunity to open God's word before you is just that. It is an opportunity. So thank you for it. Thank you for coming back week after week. I still don't know why you keep coming back. But thank you for doing it. I know it's not for us. It is simply because you want to be more like Jesus. If you will, please look at Mark chapter 6. We're going to read these first six verses, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Mark writes, verse 1, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, we come now to what is really the central focus of this morning. It's, we've had time now to sing our praises to you, which is important. You, you are worthy of that. You're worthy of our praises all the time. But this is the moment where you speak to us through your word. And this is the thing we need most of all because we live in a world that is filled with lies. Our, our hearts are filled with lies. Our culture, our society is filled with lies. And where do we turn for truth in the midst of all of that? It is to your word. And so this time now to open it, to think through it, to talk through it, to study it, this is, this is critical to our spiritual life. This is critical to us being like you. This is critical to our eternal life. This is, this is central to everything. And so we come now and we open it and we ask very humbly, very, very graciously that you would come and meet with us and speak to us, that your spirit would, would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to believe your word this morning and to believe it more and more and more so that the end result always is that we can look more like you, be more like you, think more like you, and live more like you. That is the kingdom. That is the kingdom coming and expanding throughout this world as your people look more and more like you as the name of Jesus fills this earth as one day it will completely. 
And so we give you this time. We ask that you will bless us through your word. Help me to speak it clearly this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we come to the end here of another section in Mark. So we've been working through this over the last few months. I don't know if you realize this or not, we're about a third of the way done with this book. Uh, take heart, it took us about a year to get through chapter one, and it's taken us about a year to get through chapters two through six. So we're moving faster now, as I thought we would. Uh, it was just like Genesis. In Genesis, if you remember, if you were here for that, you know, we started off kind of slow, but because it's, it's narrative, because it's a story, you have to take the stories in chunks and kind of deal with them in chunks. And so as you get further and further in, it seems like it goes a little faster and faster as we continue working through it. And I think we've seen that here in Mark, and we'll continue seeing it here. And since I mentioned Genesis, I mentioned the flood earlier, the ark, um, I thought I would revert back to something that I began in Genesis when we were studying that book. And sometimes we'd get to the end of a, of a section of the text, a section of narrative, and I would have like all this stuff in my head that I didn't know quite how to, what to do with it or quite how to finish it out. And so I began a special type of sermon that I would do once every great now and then. Does anyone remember the name of it? It was called a smorgasbord sermon. There you go. I was trying to get you started on it. Smorgasbord sermon, okay? Uh, I choose the word smorgasbord because of our days in college. Uh, at the end of each semester, the cooks, the chefs would always, I think, take that last week and just try to clear the freezer. So whatever was left sitting in there, it didn't matter if it went together or not. They just would cook it and put it out on the line. So you'd have like chimichangas next to hot dogs next to like wontons. And you're just kind of going down the, the line like, okay, that's, I never take the chimichangas. But everything else, you're like, okay. Um, it, that, that was the smorgasbord week. And I understood why they did it. And now as a pastor who is studying through particularly particularly in narrative, particularly in story formats like what we have here in Mark and like, we ha like what we had in Genesis, there are things that kind of come to my mind along the way that they don't really fit in the particular week where I'm looking at it, but I, I'm interested in it. I, I want to think about it a little bit more. It stands out to me, and as we get to the end of one of these sections, I felt like it's a good time just to go back and hit a couple of things for you so that you can see some of the things that God has been impressing on me. This is, uh, if you're not used to hearing me speak, a little bit unusual for me because if, to me, the most important part of teaching uh, is all about flow, uh, thought flow, organization of thought is to me the most important concept of teaching, not just preaching and I'm talking about teaching in general, and that can be done in all kinds of different ways, it, whether you're teaching math or history or the scriptures, it doesn't really matter. The ability for people to organize thoughts in, a, in an order that makes sense and takes a student from point A all the way to point B without them even really realizing that they went, that, that is the sign of a good teacher. The best guy I ever heard do that, I've said this before, but he, he will forever be in my mind the pinnacle of great teaching is Dr. Mark Minnick, my Bible teacher my freshman year of college. He was just a phenomenal teacher. And he's not, a, he's not a particularly animated guy. Like, I think his total range of motion when he preaches is this. Like, this is as far as he gets. Like, and his total voice range is like from here to here, here to here. So if you listen to him online, you, you could almost go to sleep because he's kind of soothing. If you cannot go to sleep, <laughs> if you can just listen to him, he is a master of of making thoughts flow in such a way that when you sit down, I remember sitting in his classes and I would, he'd say, well, let's pray. We pray. And then two minutes later, the bell would ring and we'd be done. 
And I'd look at my watch, because I wore a watch back then, I didn't have a phone, and I'd be like, an hour has passed? Remember watches? People used to wear those? <laughs> I'd be like, an hour has passed? Really? It was that good? And I always tried to be like him. I wanted to be like him. And so for me, the majority of my time in preparation for sermon is normally given to that, actually. It's relatively easy to figure out what the text means. How to get that out to someone else so that they understand it, that's the hard part right there. And so normally I give a lot of time to thought flow, but because this is a smorgasbord sermon, I don't care about flow whatsoever. So it's just whatever I'm thinking about here, right? I wrote some things down, four things specifically, that had just came to my mind as we're ending this section, and I want to kind of go over them with you, and we'll also work through these verses as well in the process. But let, let's talk about four things. Number one, I, I just want to draw your attention to some of the pattern and the organization that we've seen in Mark's gospel. And I know this is going to be like a boring point to a couple of you, but for me as a student of Mark here, the further we go in Mark, the more impressed I am by him as, a, as an author. I'll be honest, part of the reason I chose to go through Mark's gospel was because it was short, and therefore it was easy, right? Because short always equals easier. Um, that's not really true. Mark, while often ignored as one of the, in the Gospels, he's, he's the least studied, least looked at Gospel by far. Mark is very well thought out, very well organized. And I hope you have been seeing little indications of that as we work through the text. For example, just think about some of the words that keep coming up, like the word immediately. It's just a little word. It's just, just a tiny little word that he keeps using over and over again to advance us in through the story, to move us on, or how he uses the word crowds at critical moments to show us some things that you would think would be positive for Jesus but end up not being. You see Mark using vocabulary in, in incredible ways, really, and I've been very impressed by him as an author with that. I think about some of his techniques that he's used uh, as he's worked through this. So intercalation, right, our favorite word of the last few weeks, a uh, technique where he takes one story and he inserts it into the middle of another one so that he can help us understand the, the larger point in a better way. He loves doing those kinds of things. Even his arrangement of his sections is beginning to make more sense to me and stand out to me more. He started with that prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, where he introduced to us Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Remember that? And then he went into a section from one, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 3, verse 6, where he's really just trying to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And how did that section end? Do you remember it ended with people having to respond? And yes, there were some who believed, but there were many more who rejected him right? The Pharisees rejected him, saying he was possessed by Beelzebub. His family rejected him, saying he's out of his mind. People looked at this claim that this man, Jesus, from this town called Nazareth, is the son of God, and they did not believe. And so we moved into this next section, the one we've been working in the last couple of months. Started in chapter 4, verse 1, and went all, all the way to chapter 5, verse 43, kind of. And in that section there, what has been the main theme, the main emphasis? It's the kingdom of God. And throughout that section, I think what Mark has been showing us is that Jesus is king. First section, Jesus is the son of God. This section, Jesus is king. Here's what the kingdom's going to be like. Here's what he's king over. Jesus is king. And now we get to these last few or first few verses of chapter 6, the ending of this section. And what do you see again? Jesus being rejected. And so what you begin to notice is a pattern developing of how Mark is organizing his material, showing us things about Jesus showing us people's responses. That's all. 
it's just, it's encouraging to me to see that these things we study, these books we read, and no matter how much I study, I am continually amazed at how God organizes his material to speak to us in very simple, clear, and easy ways. And you should be encouraged by that as well. Number two, I want to bring us back to the kingdom of God. This whole section we've been in, as I just mentioned, has been about the kingdom of God. And I've tried along the way to keep repeating a particular phrase to you over and over again so that you would have something in your minds to remember what the kingdom of God is. And it's a very simple phrase, maybe too simple, but I hope it sticks and I hope it's helpful enough that the kingdom of God is about the rule and reign of God. Okay? you want to know what the kingdom of God is about, it's about the rule and reign of God. And if you want to see a good picture of what this world was like when God's rule and reign was absolute and unquestioned, we need simply look back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and the early part of Genesis 3. Because in that garden scene, we see man living under the perfect rule and reign of God. We see Adam acting as sort of a vice regent in this kingdom that God had established there on this earth and within that garden. And as the regent, as the vice regent, so to speak, of this kingdom, Adam was given responsibilities. He was given privileges. He was given blessings galore by God himself. And of course, what did he do with all of that? He rejected it. And the thing that we pointed out, and a thing I hope you remember, if you remember nothing else from Genesis, the thing I hope you remember most of all is that Adam's sin that day in the garden is not simply about disobedience. Do you remember what I told you that it was really about? That it was really a complete rebellion against the rule and reign of God? It's not simply that he's not following one little rule. It's that he is saying in that act that he does not want to live under God's rule and reign, that he wants to be like God, that he wants to make his own decisions. He wants to set his own course. He wants to establish his own rules, his own reign, and his own name on this earth. This is what the fall is. This is, this is why Sproul calls it cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the rule and reign of God. And, of course, we know what is introduced through that rebellion. It's sin and death and, and chaos and, and pain and all of these things that have characterized human society ever since. And the one thing that's been needed more than anything else has been the return of that rule and reign, the return of God's kingdom has been needed more than anything else. And so as we, as we come here to Mark, we come here to the beginning of this good news of Jesus, what is it that Jesus comes proclaiming there in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? The time is at hand. Or excuse me, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel Jesus here in those verses comes proclaiming that the thing needed most of all by humanity is finally now coming back. And it's coming back in a person. It's coming back in the person of Jesus. This kingdom was inaugurated in Jesus in history. It continues to expand in Jesus as people accept him as Savior. And it will one day be completed in Jesus when he returns, okay? 
The kingdom of God is wrapped up now in the person of his son. And that means then that our mission of making people perfect in Jesus, that's the work of the kingdom. Because as people begin to look more and more like him, as they become more and more like him, as I said in my prayer, then the kingdom of God spreads more and more on this earth in which we live. So we as individuals, we as community groups, we as a church together, we, we need to see ourselves as outposts of the kingdom. You hear what I'm saying here? And I'm just, again, I, if you could see my notes, you'd see they were very minimal today. So a lot of this is just things that were on my mind this week and thinking about the end of this section. I, I, I want us to think about ourselves as being little outposts of the kingdom. When you're at work, when you're on the ship, when you're in the office, when you're in the neighborhood, when you're with your friends, when you're with your family, you're a kingdom missionary. Your job is at that moment to be a representative of the kingdom and an ambassador for the king. Do, do you understand that? This is what you're here to do. This is what I'm here to do. And because our work is kingdom work, then the words and works of Jesus that we've seen throughout this section here, they have been incredibly applicable to us, even if I've done a poor job applying them. I mean, just think back to the parables that we looked at for just a moment. You know, first, we saw that parable of the sower right? And in that, we realize that not everyone will accept Jesus and submit to his kingship. Some people are going to hear the message we proclaim to them, and they're going to ignore us completely, okay? Are you okay with that? I'm not saying you have to like it. I don't like it either, but do you understand that's going to happen? Others are going to hear the message proclaimed, and they're going to seemingly accept, but as soon as something comes up that's like painful or hard about it, they're going to walk away, because there was never really anything there. And you shouldn't be left scratching your head going, what happened? Jesus told you. Some people are going to hear and they're going to respond, but they're not going to show any fruit. And again, you're left scratching your head going, is, is it real? Is it not? I, I don't know. But folks, listen. Some will hear, some will respond, and they will produce amazing fruit. Amazing fruit in the kingdom spreads. And so while the, the spread of the kingdom is, is filled with like setbacks and what seem like failures, there's also guaranteed success. Do you remember us like emphasizing that along the way? You're in the only endeavor that you will ever be a part of in this world that is guaranteed success. Never forget that. We can't forget that as a church. Uh, second, in the parable of the sea growing, we saw that all of that growth, is that our doing? Huh? No? No. It's who's doing who, who causes the growth of the kingdom? It's God. The farmer sows the seed and he goes to bed. <laughs> and over the night, through the days, through the weeks ahead, the seed sprouts and it grows. He knows not how. God is the one who causes the growth of this kingdom because ultimately it's all going to be for his glory. And it just reminds me again of this thing that I've been saying, this thing I've been emphasizing more and more of late. It's not about us. The growth we're interested in is not the growth of Cornerstone. The, the name that we want to focus on is not any of our names, not the name of any of our community groups, not the name of this church. There is one name and one name only. There is only one kingdom we are trying to grow, and it is not this one in this room. The kingdom that we are interested in growing and being a part of is a kingdom that only God can grow, but which, in which he chooses to use us. And so if God takes this 
ragtag group of people right here today. And he destroys Cornerstone completely, but he grows his kingdom. What should we say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because who cares about Cornerstone? We care about one kingdom, one kingdom only, and that's the kingdom God is growing and is graciously, graciously using us as a part of his plan. Third thing we saw in the parable of the mustard seed, that while it may not start out looking so great, <laughs> what seems small and insignificant at first can become over time something amazingly different. Just again, think about Jesus dying as a criminal that day. Who standing around the cross that afternoon would have looked at that scene and said, this is the beginning of something amazing? Nobody. Nobody would have said that. And yet, 2,000 years later, we're meeting in a room this morning to sing praises to a crucified criminal? Does that make any sense? Absolutely not but it is the glory of God to do so. And as we labor in the kingdom, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart personally that, that struggles continue to exist either in your life or the lives of those with whom you're working, with whom you're ministering to. Sometimes it takes time for the gospel to grow. Sometimes it takes time for the kingdom to expand. We have to be patient as we're working with unbelievers around us, don't become discouraged because not everyone is just falling on their knees accepting Jesus the first time you speak Christ to them. Sometimes it takes time for the gospel to grow. You don't give up. Don't give up. We've got a long road ahead. We don't know when Christ is coming back. So all we can do, folks, is to continue to labor as faithful servants of the kingdom. Think, think about the deeds we looked at. You know, first, that story of Jesus calming the sea, that gives us hope because the one who is the king over chaos is the one who has sent us out into chaos. It doesn't matter what things come upon us. It doesn't matter what troubles our, our country goes through, our society, our city. There is nothing that can happen in this world that can thwart God's plan to establish his kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you watch the news and get all fearful of things, gonna, things are going to change, it's going to be terrible in the future? Oh my goodness. Do you really believe that there's no chaos that can thwart God's plan? Because I'm telling you, there's no chaos that can thwart God's plan. He's king over chaos. There's no evil that can thwart his plan, and not even death itself we saw can thwart God's plan because Jesus has conquered all of it. And so if we serve the one who is king over chaos and king over evil and king over death, <laughs> no wonder we're guaranteed success. We go out then as servants of a kingdom that will be established no matter what. Folks, you and I are part of that. Remember that. Number three, third thing in my little smorgasbord I wanted to point out is, is the, what I'm calling, what I read this week, I love this phrase. I don't know that I've ever seen it said quite this way, so I'm just going to give it to you as written. It was the scandal of the ordinariness of Jesus the scandal of the ordinariness of Jesus. And, and this is here in Mark 6, and I'm not going to put it back on the board, so you have to look at your Bible in front of you. If you'll look there at Mark 6, you know, it's the conclusion of the section. Mark tells us here that after saying and doing all this stuff that we've been looking at, okay, after teaching about the, the, the parables, teaching about the kingdom, and then getting in the boat and the storm, and he gets to the other side, the garrison incident happens, he gets back in the boat, comes back over, that's when he heals Jairus' daughter, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. After all of this is done, 
Jesus leaves Capernaum and he goes back to his hometown, back to Nazareth with his disciples. And on the Sabbath day, probably Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue and he is teaching. And Mark tells us that many, not everybody, but many who heard him were astonished. And we hear that phrase and we think about this scene and we're like, well, of course, who wouldn't be astonished by Jesus' teaching? I mean, he's Jesus, right? This has got to be a positive thing, and yet it's not. Because the nature of their astonishment is laid out by Mark with five questions in a statement. Question one, where did this man get these things? Question two, what is the wisdom given to him? Question three, how are such mighty works done by his hands? And if you pause and just just looked at those three questions, you might still think, well, maybe they're genuinely like amazed by him. I mean, if you heard Jesus' wisdom, you heard his teaching, you saw his miracles, wouldn't you be amazed? I would be amazed. So maybe if we, these were the only questions asked, we might think that they were genuine expressions of astonishment, but they're not done yet. Question four, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Question five, and are not his sisters here with us? And then comes the statement that clarifies the true nature of all these questions, and they took offense at him. These are questions not of genuine amazement. These are questions of offense. And and I want to just make a couple of observations about these questions first. Let's just get this one out of the way first. You do learn a few things about Jesus here in the questions, do you not? I mean, just a couple of little basic tidbits. One, he was a carpenter. If you ever wondered where we got that from, here you go. He's a carpenter, he's a, he's a tecton, he's a, he's a workman with either wood, metal, or stone, so he might have done a little of all three, but you know, it's a respectable job, but it's not a respected job. Does, does that make sense? It's a respectable job, but it's not a respected job, and that will come into play here in a moment. This is a very blue-collar trade, it's a very hard job, that's why uh, one of the commentators I read said the same thing that I've been saying to you, that all the pictures that show him as an effeminate guy make no sense, because if you're a first-century craftsman, a first-century worker with wood, metal, stone, no, no power tools, you're, you're going to be a big guy, strong man. So, so this is who he is, he's referred to here as the son of Mary, which could either be an insult about him being illegitimate, or it could just refer to the fact that Joseph is dead. No way of telling, but one of the two is probably true. Number three, you see he has four brothers. You see their names. And number four, he has at least two sisters. Maybe more, but at least two, because it's in the plural. So you've got a family of at least seven kids, plus the parents. This is his early life, and we don't know much more about it. But second, notice that the questions reveal that the people asking them, they don't really have a high view of Jesus. In fact, the questions reveal that they have a low view. You see, as Americans, when we read these questions, we have a little problem. When we read these questions, we forget the fact that we are a society that loves rags-to-riches stories. We love them. We, we love the story of the man or the woman who was, you know, very poor as a child, brought up you know, as farmers or whatever else, and maybe they invented something, they came up with an idea, they started a business, it became super successful, and now they're billionaires. We love those kinds of stories. We actually disdain people who were born wealthy and stay wealthy their whole lives. That, that as Americans, is not a very 
exciting idea to us. We're, we're very, uh, our society is very upwardly mobile in terms of our class thinking, okay? That's not true here. See, their culture is not built on any of, that, of those ideas. There was very little mobility between classes. The upper class people are the wealthy people who are to be revered, and they have the time to study and gain wisdom and, and knowledge, but these lower class people do not. And the specific question that shows this here in the text is when they ask, is this not the carpenter? Isn't this him? They're, they're trying to place him in his class. Do you see what I'm saying? They're trying to put him where he belongs. And if you understand the significance of that particular question, then you'll understand the significance of the first three above it. Well, then where does he get this wisdom? Uh, wh what is this wisdom? Where, where does he get these things? Where is the, uh, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In other words, they're saying, who does he think he is? We know him. We know what he is. He's a nothing. He's a nobody. Who does he, and now he's become some great teacher, some great miracle worker? Please, like, you can almost see them rolling their eyes as they ask these questions about Jesus here. Can, can you see now why Mark says that they're taking offense at him? These questions are being asked to write him off completely. No, note that they're not denying either his wisdom or his works. Do they? They, they, in fact, acknowledge his wisdom, and they acknowledge his deeds, and yet they deny him. Thus, Jesus gives them this little saying or proverb that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, the, the people in the other towns can see what he is. I mean, at the very least, they see him as some great miracle-working teacher. At the very minimum, they, they acknowledge that. The demons see who he is. They recognize that he's Jesus, the Son of God. But here in Nazareth, he's just Jesus, the local boy. He's just Jesus, the tecton, the carpenter, the workman, nothing more. Which leads me to number four, then. The importance of faith has been evident throughout this section that we've been in. We've seen it, uh, or excuse me, some will claim to have it, but when persecution comes, they just simply walk away, right? That was in the parable. Others will say they've been changed by faith, but they won't show any fruit. Some will genuinely have it, and the proof will be seen in their lives. The disciples lacked it when they were in the boat, and they thought the storm was going to kill them all. And they were fearful and they wake Jesus up. The townspeople of Gerasa lacked it when they begged Jesus to leave after he had cast out the demons. The woman with the issue of blood had it when she believed, and it wasn't perfect, but at least she had it when she believed that she could touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she would be healed of her disease. Jairus needed it when he heard that his daughter was dead. Do not fear, only believe, Jesus said. And here now, the lack of it prevents the people of Nazareth from being from having mighty works done in their midst, Mark says. Because of their lack of faith, he didn't do many mighty works, except for a few. There must have been a few people here in Nazareth who actually believed in Jesus, that he was more than just a local boy they watched grow up, that he's more than just a, a tecton, a carpenter. And for those few sick people who believed, he did what he always does. He healed them, Mark says. And yet, and yet as a whole, Mark tells us the saddest thing in verse 6. 
that whereas the people had been astonished by Jesus' teaching, clearly not in a good way, now Jesus is the one astonished by them. He is marveling at their unbelief. That's got to be saying something. When, when the God of creation, who has seen untold unbelief through the centuries, looks at a town and he himself now marvels at theirs, that's got to be some pretty bad unbelief. With all they've seen, with all they heard, how can they not believe? And now, now let me tie these last two points together and venture, I think, an answer that will ring true even today. Part of the reason, at least, that they don't believe is because they become blinded by the scandal of the ordinariness of Jesus. Part of the reason I think that they don't believe, and part of the reason people today still don't believe, is they have become blinded. They've blinded themselves by the scandal of the ordinariness of Jesus. Because let's face it, folks, you have gathered together today to worship a man who is, just at face value, not very impressive. I don't say that for effect. I don't say that for shock value. I mean it with all my heart. At face value, he is not very impressive. I mean, it's hard enough to believe that God would come to earth in the form of a man in the first place, is it not? But then to believe further that he would do so, uh, and come as a, a blue-collar guy from a backwater town in a conquered nation to be executed as a criminal? Because that's what we say. To, to say that God would come like that, I think that's probably a little harder to believe. From, from every human perspective, it doesn't make sense. This is the scandal of Jesus. Or, if I could use a more biblical phrase, one that we have heard this morning already, this is the offense of the cross. This is the, uh, that Paul talks about there in Galatians 6, this is the folly of the cross that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1. Listen again to this passage that Wes already read to us this morning. Paul writes that the word of the cross is folly. It is moronic. It is foolish to everyone who is perishing. When, when they hear the message that God came to earth in the form of a man from Nazareth 2,000 years ago and died as a criminal on a Roman cross, they think, stupid. This is folly to those who are perishing. <laughs> but to us who are being saved, what is it? Not folly, it's the power of God. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, Paul asks? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world because they expected God to do one thing, and he came doing something completely different? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach one message. Do you know what that message is? 
Christ crucified. Think about that. We preach one message, that this man Jesus from this backwater town in Nazareth (laughs) that's crucified as a criminal, that he did not remain dead, that the grave could not hold him, death could not keep him, that he did indeed rise again and is far more than what he seemed. We preach one message to everyone around us every day at work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, with our friends. It is Jesus Christ crucified. This is folly to them. It is a stumbling block to Jews. It is folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, if he had any, would be far wiser than men. And the weakness of God, if he had any, would be far stronger than men. And yet, what do we so often do? What has the church so often done throughout the centuries? We want to clean up God's folly for him. We want to make that message less offensive, less foolish. We want to be accepted by the world around us, considered smart and educated and sophisticated. And definitely, definitely above all, not weird. But in the work of the kingdom that we've been called to, we've not been called to make the message less offensive. We've not been called to appear wise in and of ourselves. We've been tasked with faithfully proclaiming the simple message about this simple man who was far more than what he seemed. We have been tasked with proclaiming that he did something for us that no one else could do, that he took our sins on himself and paid for them with his own blood, that he satisfied the wrath of God as no one else could. And if we believe him, we put our trust in him, put all our hope in him and see him as that only hope, then he forgives us and promises forgiveness that he has earned, which can be ours. Thus, Paul ends that section there in 1 Corinthians 1 with these words that we read so many times and sometimes I think forget the context. The context is this, this foolish message we proclaim. Paul then says, for consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's no name in heaven but one. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God because we didn't have any. He became to us righteousness because we lacked it. He became to us sanctification because we were unholy. And he became to us redemption because we were tied up in the, bound, in the, in the ropes, the chains of sin. He became all of these things to us so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in himself? No. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we see here that you are king. You are king, and though these people in this passage have rejected you, they have 
relegated you to just being a carpenter. They can't see past what you appear to be on the human level. We have seen with the eyes of faith that you are far more than that, that you are the Savior, that you are the Son of God. We acknowledge that, we believe that, and we have placed every last drop of our hope for eternal life and for forgiveness in you, Jesus If you are not who you claim to be, we have no hope. It is in you and in nothing else. And God, as we go out of here today as servants of this kingdom, I pray that this simple exhortation this morning will remind us that our mission is not to make the message of the king more palatable to unbelieving ears. The message that we proclaim is Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but it is the power of God for those you have called. And so while some may reject, some may appear to believe and then fall away, others may do other things, Lord, our message is simply to proclaim and pursue the growth of your kingdom, not ours, to pursue the expansion of your name, not ours so that you get all the glory, so that one day when we stand before you, we will say with all joy, all joy, that we have no boast except in you, that there is no glory except yours, that you were far better than anything and everything this world could offer. And so God, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. Help us to go out encouraged and energized to serve you in the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.